Good morning. It's good to hear your faith-filled, Christ-honoring chatter. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Community Church. And on behalf of the four elders, we welcome each and every one of you to this morning's gathering. Sometimes I don't want to break up that chatter. It just sounds too good. Well, it seems too good to be true. As an Iowan boy, I dreamt of the Rocky Mountains, but never did I get there until my sophomore year in high school. So with one of my best friend's family, we set out in a, on a dark morning and made our way to the mountains. So weaving through the cornstalks of Iowa and driving through the dreadful humidity of Missouri, we made it to the highway of Kansas. And on and on and on and on and on we drove, right down the straight, flat, endless road of Kansas to the great Rocky Mountains in Colorado. Now, I found myself a bit confused by Dorothy's sentiment. There's no place like home in Kansas? But after seemingly days of driving, my eyes began to dance. Slowly rising out of the horizon, there they were. The Rocky Mountains stretching more than 3,000 miles from the northernmost part of British Columbia, clear down to New Mexico, and extending upwards to caress the sky at elevations of 14,500 feet above sea level. This mountain range took my breath away. I could hardly wait to get there and to, to get out and, and to smell the air and to actually walk on beauty. So what happened next was quite unanticipated. After an hour or so of driving, I asked that, you know, that well-worn question, are we there yet? I could see the mountain range, but it, it didn't seem like it was getting any bigger, so my heart started kind of sagging a bit. My thoughts velcroed to the cramped space of a car, wondering if the wheels of the car would continue to go round and round and round and round. Well, my good friend's dad was a bit philosophical in his outlook and comments. And see, he saw a good time to come in with a good lesson. He says, hey guys, I get it. We all want to get to our destination and it's, it's approaching, but we must wait for it patiently. We need to remember that we will see the magnificence of the mountains for hours before we actually touch the magnificence of the mountains. So when I look back on this scene in my mind, it does remind me a bit about the Christian life. At the moment of new birth, we were given life and sight to see sin as awful and to see the Savior and His work as awesome. And we were given sight of His majesty and His mercy from afar 
we set out together on the way, walking by faith to the promised land until finally we enjoy the uninterrupted, ever-increasing, rapturous experience of Christ Himself. Yet, after a few months or a few years or a few decades of walking daily by faith through all the difficulties, all the temptations, all the sadness and sorrows, and even those droning days of monotony when nothing seems to really change, our hope can wane and even waver. As the proverb says, hope postponed, hope delayed, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Like so many years ago, cooped up in a cramped car going down a long, long, flat, straight, barren road with only a little miniature model of the mountains in our hands, we can start losing perspective, become disoriented, and our hearts really start getting sick. And they go into a spiral, downward, sinking, sinking, sinking. Welcome to your world. Welcome to mine. Welcome to Psalm 42 and 43. What we aim to do this morning is to so open our hearts to fillet ourselves, to be humble before the glorious mercies of God that we can actually hear Him speak through the pages of Scriptures into very crevices and broken pieces of our lives so that we will regain hope. Now, I don't know where you've been last night, last week, last month, last year. Some of you I do. Some of you know where I've been. We live in this broken world with a broken body by faith, with thanksgiving, and we weep. So today what I want us to do is just follow a friend. This friend is a poet. This friend is a psalmist. He wrote 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48. This cluster that we're moving into in the second book of this big book called the Psalter, the Psalms, We've just gone out of book one with Pastor Brian, and we sensed a lot of sorrow. Book two is hardly different, and we're toiling and tumbling through sorrow, knowing a destination, Psalms 146 and 147 and 148 and 149 and 150. There's a pinnacle waiting there, but we've got to be patient over this series, and we've got to be patient in this life to reach the pinnacle and behold the wondrous glories of Christ. So today, I'm just going to simply take you by faith on a little walk with a friend. It's the son of Korah, sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah, they were Levites, and they were instructed and, and installed in an office at the temple in Jerusalem, 
and uh, Levites were, were charged to um, just take care of the worship. So they put things together at the temple, and they would lead people like you and me to the temple. Now, in Judaism, in the Old Testament, the temple is the centerpiece of worship. It's the closest you're going to get to God. I know God is all present everywhere, all the time, yes. But in the Old Testament, and I'd say even in the New Testament in life, He's got some particularities, and he, he, he shows up, if you will, a, a greater degree of presence and glory and power and so on and so forth. That's what this temple is there for, and people are coming, and they know they're sinful, and so the temple has an altar, and there's sacrifices and all those things, and blood is pouring, and the smell is stenching, and you start sensing what sin really is, and yet there's hope, there's forgiveness, the slaughter of the sacrifice and the bleeding out gives a sense of you will it'll be well with your soul you will be washed clean you'll be invited in to even the holy of holies right where the ark is and so this Levite his job was to take people like you and me and lead us to the holy mountain to the place where God dwells to the altar and something's going on with this Levite. It's hard to tell. I don't think we know exactly what is going on, but it appears that there's glimpses of exile. And so he is taken up and out of the precincts, and he has gone a long ways away, probably 200 miles away from home, Jerusalem. And his job in this dispersion was to gather people and to go back to Jerusalem three times a year. This was the festivals. Um, Unleavened Bread Festival, uh, the, uh, the Harvest Festival, the Ingathering Festival. There are three um, holidays in, uh, for the Jews' uh, life each, each year. And these were um, immensely important for the Jew. And they would just pack their bags and go on a pilgrimage. And up and ascending and ascending and ascending till they get to the mountain, which isn't really a mountain, but a mound, a higher elevation piece. And there's Jerusalem, there's the temple, and then there's just a party, if you will, a holy, happy, huddled up party of God's people for God's glory. That's the setting here, and we'll see that the, the psalmist, the Levite, is taken away from there, and he wants to go back. It's time for a festival, and he's thwarted. He's held back for some reason, and there's enemies around him taunting him, saying, look at the situation. Look at your circumstances. Now tell me, big boy, where is your God? Huh? So taunting is going on, and harassment, and suffering, and his growing sense of desire for God and God's people is just crushing him. That's the setting and situation. So what, us, what I want us to do, there's three movements in this poem. And movement one, it's organized with the, um, the refrains, there's three of them. And, and you know them well, when I read them, you'll, you'll remember them. Um, um, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I'll yet praise him, my salvation, and my God. And it's like copy and paste, three times through the poem. 
So it, it, it sections off these three, we'll call them stanzas, and there's a movement. It, it doesn't, looks like it kind of gets stalled, but it's really, it, there's a slow movement until it, 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 it hits the third one and crescendos. So together what we're going to do is go through a drought, stanza one, then go into a deluge, stanza two, and we'll end at our destination called the delight. So please stand with me at God's reading, God's precious word as we read Psalms 42 and 43. I chose both psalms as one poem because it's one poem. <laughs> Book two of the Psalter, starting with Psalms 42, we read, To the preeminent one, or to the choir master, a miscal of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Oh, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon to Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day long, where's your God? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people and from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to the place of your dwelling. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again... Praise you, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for preserving poems. 
Thank you for writing them. You are the greatest poet around. Your lyrics make the best songs in the entire universe. I thank you for preserving them down through the ages. I thank you for the ones who have gathered them and collected them in a collage-like of the Davidic covenant so we can see you and your unbroken promises and just listen to the song being sung. Oh, give us sight to see. Give us susceptibility of heart. Uncork our ears and let us hear your song. And we pray it in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. So what we're doing here is we're going to follow a son of Korah. Might want to call him Levi or something. And he's the one, I think, that penned it. If not, it's about him and uh, the sons of Korah. And what we're attempting to do is just follow him into suffering. And there's two parts to the suffering. Both of them combined equals deep, deep, painful suffering. But it's organized into three parts, so we'll just look at it at three parts. And what we're aiming to do is, is walk with him into the desert and into the deluge to discover what needs changed in order for us to enjoy the exceeding joy. Make sense? So keep that kind of in, in your thoughts. We're in this suffering together, and I know you'll go to some of your sufferings, and I want you to go to some of your sufferings, and some of my sufferings will pop into my mind, and they might even pop out of my mouth, I don't know. But we're, we're moving through these sufferings, but we're looking at, in all of this disorientation and disturbance and deep pain, what needs changed in order for all of us to enjoy exceeding joy? So picking up in 42, verses 1 through 5, here's the drought. Now in verses 1 and 2, we see uh, the Levites' desire. He looks at this deer, and the deer is just panting. I don't know if that's literal. Perhaps it is. Maybe it's kind of like last week. Did anyone pant last week? I took my little schnoodle out. That's a dog about this big, and he has a, a delightful time frolicking and romping around. And in about two minutes, his, his mouth was wide open, and his tongue was just flapping, panting and panting and wanting what? Water. And in our day of age, we, we just get water. But in, in biblical times, water was like, I got to find it. I got to get it. And that's the situation here. I don't think he's, he's utterly dehydrated and ready to die of dehydration. But it's, it's, it's poetic. It's, it's, it's a word picture to describe his, his hunger, his thirst for, for God. And it's not just hunger and thirst for God, but notice verse 2. He is hindered. Anytime one of our desires that is really big and really aggressive, really strong inside of us, gets threatened or thwarted, look out. Notice what the heart does. 
And so he's, he's like on a leash, and he's pulled back, and he wants something that he can't get. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. And then he starts talking about his sufferings. His sufferings, uh, the latter part of verse 2 and on into verse 5. Deep disappointment because the desire is postponed. We see in verse 3, my tears I chew on, I feed on day and night. Now we're looking at suffering, and here's a huge suffering that's happening because he's exiled and he's not with the people of God and at the temple of God and he really wants to go to the temple of God with the people of God. But I think something else is, is happening here, a little bit subtle, but I think he's like spreading suffering onto his suffering here. Just a little hint at it, we'll keep going with it, but he's, he's contributing to his suffering as we notice what tears actually represent. I'm sure he's crying from time to time, and maybe morning, noon, and night, there's a lot of tears coming out of his eyes. But the tears here are reflective of grief. Whom among us has gone into grief? Grief is benumbing. Gr grief is crippling. Grief prompts us and tempts us to think awful things. And then, it can, it doesn't have to, but we start looking inward and, and, and curving onto our own souls. And, and it's kind of a pity-like, party-like, and we start feasting on our own grief. Feeding on our own grief is not a good practice when grieving. Certainly, please hear me. Just because we read a poem and we exhort one another, some of you might be in great grief, moving towards depression and despondency that you don't even see a way out. And it takes time but, but to then start moving inward and only thinking of me, myself, and I, and my pain and my grief, and we start thinking that staying there is kind of productive. That is a, a subtle, I think, in the poem suggestion that he is suffering badly, and now he's starting to contribute a little bit to it. The, the second piece to that is found in verse 4 when he says, these things I remember. And then he, he, he uh, describes this amazing uh, situation. And, uh, and one of his, his greatest delights in all his life is to lead worship. And oh, how I love that. It, it's just matchless to be with God, with God's people, in God, and, and just sing and praise and worship Him in authentic, genuine, vulnerable, God-honoring ways. But, but notice, notice something here. Again, I think it's a little intimation, a little hint that he is participating, contributing another layer of suffering on his awful suffering. And that is, I remember these things. And so then he reflects back into a wonderful thing. No problem there, right? But left unchecked, 
nostalgia can start really working on us. You see it in the book of Numbers, big time. You see it here in little hints. You can see it in the mirror from time to time. And that is you look at today and it just looks so unsatisfying. And, and then you cock your head 45 degree angle and you think about yesteryear. The good old days. Do, do you remember when? And, and you start all actually seeing like little people dancing. Those are kids. And, and, and there's, there's frolic and there's, there's laughter and everything is so perfect. Nostalgia takes everything bad out of past and puts you right into the most beautiful picture. And then you start dancing inside yourself. I understand, I do it. But it can get deadly if we get stuck in there taking out reality and almost putting in a fabrication, a fanciful fantasy world. And then we go, I'm pining for yesteryear. I don't want today. I hate today. I don't even want to get up today. I think something along those lines is happening to our friend. He's thinking on things. And then he goes into his refrain in verse 5. Notice that he's not acquiescing and yielding and just completely giving way to grief and sorrow and sadness and allowing his soul to sink like quicksand until it gets up to the nostrils and then it envelops his whole face. He's not going to do that. He's fighting the good fight of faith. And so he, he talks. Now, this is so interesting to me. This is an extremely personal, passionate poem because there are about 50 pronouns in this little poem. They're just popping everywhere. And if you look carefully, there's only really two characters in it. There's not the throng. He's not talking to people. He's talking to God, and he's talking to self. We'll call self the soul. And he says, well, why are you downcast? Who's he talking to? Himself. Oh, my soul, why are you so downcast within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so here we see a strategy. The suffering is great. The, the, the present looks dim. He is starting to participate in that, but he's not done. He's a fighter, and he's going to fight for faith. And he looks I don't know if he opens up his shirt and starts talking. I don't know where the soul is. But he knows he is listening to himself when he should be talking to himself. Some of you know, uh, he's been called like the, the last Puritan, uh, modern Puritan, 1981, he died, and in the, in the late 60s, he's over in London at uh, Westminster Chapel, if you know a little bit about that, I mean, it is popping, and the Holy Spirit is descending, and there's incredible um, revivals and, and incredibly 
um, pristine theology and passion in it um, over there in London. And his name is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and a very good book that he wrote is Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. And he's writing on Psalm 42 and 43. <laughs> it's interesting. And he, he capitalizes on this verse we're looking at here in verse 5 of Psalm 42. And these are the words he says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Uh, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they just start talking to you. They bring you back to the problems of yesterday and so forth. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, he's talking about this guy, we're, we call him our friend that we're following. This man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self-talk to him, he starts talking to himself. And then he says, why are you downcast on my soul? So on and so forth. His soul had been depressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak truth to you. It's a strategy that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used most of his ministry life. And it's a strategy that was derived out of this psalmist, this poet, our friend who's taking us through a great melancholy, if not depression. Well, are we done with suffering? I found it interesting that here we are in an arid, desert-like place, and then the next verse, all of a sudden water is everywhere, <laughs> and he's tumbling around. Please note this is a poem. I, I don't think that he took a dive into the Jordan River and cascaded down the rocks and went into the Sea of Galilee or something. I don't think it's literal. This is figurative language, and we, we pick up um, in verse 6, and we're calling it the deluge, continuing to look at suffering, wanting to answer the question, what must change? in order for us to enjoy the exceeding joy. Picking up in verse 6, we see his suffering. Now, the landscape in poetry communicates theology. So when you're reading, notice what time of day it is. Is the sun out? Is it dark? Notice the landscape. Are you in treacherous mountains? Are you in a desert? Are you by the sea? Those kind of things begin to reflect the, the implications of the, the teaching and, and give us a, a more... Um, a fuller sense of, of what he's saying here. So, verses 6 and 7, we come to his suffering once again, and we see the land of Jordan, Hermon, and Mount Mazar. Now, I don't think anyone knows where Mount Mazar is. Mazar is a Hebrew word that just means super-duper small. <laughs> and I think it's a play on words. I think he just feels super-duper small in the midst of this mountain range. It Hermon is in the, the northern part um, and extends 
probably into Syria, real close into that area. He's in enemy territories, outside the land. It could be like the headwaters of the Jordan, um, and, and, it's, and, and there's water now, and it's flowing. And, and it's flowing over rocks, and it, and it jumps off little cliffs, and it has little waterfalls, and it splashes, and, and you hear all this tumbling. And he uses that to talk about his suffering. Geographically, he's a long way from home. Probably, we'll say, 200 miles or more from home. Likely taking about 15, 16 days to get home. Have you ever taken a trip I know there's layovers and all those things, but have you ever taken a trip that has taken 16 days to get home? Have you ever tried it on foot or in a caravan? I don't think I'm talking to anyone like that. It'd be like going outside this door and, and, and we're going to go to Louisville today. Join me. Let's go on foot. And about 16 days later, no, about seven days later, if according to some of the biblical scholars, it takes about 20 miles a day is a good day of travel. We get to Louisville, and we have another five days more to travel. That's a long, long, this is what he's talking about. He's a long, long way from home, and now the deep, the waterfalls, the breakers, the waves, this is all conjuring up awful things. The deep is echoing uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And you can see right at the beginning of creation, God started it this way and then spoke into chaos. And this is threatening, intimidating, disorienting moments. It's dark. It's deep. It's dangerous. It's foreboding. I don't want to be there in Genesis 1, and 1 verse 2. And then you start hearing this water. And then you notice that he's tumbling, and it's going over him. Think Jonah chapter 2, verses 4 and following in his poem. He uses this very imagery. This is not good. Have you ever gotten close to drowning? Show of hands. One. Gosh, I'll bet you can feel this. When I was, I'm 60. When I was 8 years old, I remember it as though it were yesterday. <laughs> I'm in the pool. I love the pool. It's three feet. There's about three or four guys, spindly arms and just these little, and we're pushing each other and punching each other and pushing each other down in the water, and it's just guys, right? It's just boys. This big, fat little kid jumped on me, and he sat on me, and I really, really, really can still see it, if not even feel it, and, and it's funny, right? <sighs> Until you want to gulp oxygen, not water. And I just remember exploding this big fat little kid. I was 68 pounds at that time. And he went, I don't think he was tumbling. I think that's a little overboard. But I shot out of there because I needed help. That's what's happening here. Deep suffering that won't end moves into like a melancholy, like a depression, like I'm sinking in quicksand. I need out. 
What gets him moving out? Because now we're starting to move. Instead of down, 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 there's a pivot coming up in the poem. And we're going to start going up. What happened here? He started looking at waterfall and breakers and, and waves. Now look at the pronoun. Just stare at it for a second. Your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. What is he getting at? He begins to start coming to terms with. He begins to get oriented. And his suffering is seen under the sweet providence of God. Now, I used a term that some of you might not be familiar with. Some of us are more familiar with the sovereignty of God. I love the topic. But it tends, I think, to think way, way, way out there. He is in control of macro and micro. Comets and aphids and all in between. There he is. Nothing escapes his notice and nothing gets out of control apart from his bidding. That's true. But providence is super, super personal. And I think he's talking about his suffering is beginning to see and look like God's order in his life. So I went to a 1563 catechism. I know you guys are just rejoicing right now, going, oh, I've read that one. That was so, so good. And, and um, question 27 asks people like you and me, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the 16th century that's still going on today catechism reads, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade Rain and drought, fruitful and lean, years, food, drink, health, sickness, prosperity, poverty. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. What a message for Father's Day. He is seeing his suffering not as fate, not as out of control, but now he starts seeing a fatherly hand in his life. He's still suffering. He's still crying. But there's something happening in his heart. And then we reach the fulcrum or the pivot in the poem. And that is found right in 8. I would box it. I would highlight it, I would memorize it, I would, dare I say, take little scissors and cut it out and hold on to it. That might cringe me, but do whatever it takes to take God, a copy of God's Word and get it really close to the heart, if not inside your soul. It reads this, By day the Lord commands or commissions His steadfast love. At night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Here's the fulcrum. Here's the pivot. 
Here's the epicenter. If we miss this, we miss it the whole morning and the whole poem all together. It doesn't really even flow. Everything's been flowing, and all of a sudden, verse 8. <laughs> and that's, that's what God does. And he, he, he commands, he summons. He, this is like a commission. His loving kindness. Now, some of you don't geek out in terms, so please just be patient with me. But I, I looked at this poem, and I noticed, so I was adding up, Titles of God. God, 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 God. Thirteen times. God is a wonderful title for God. I'm not bashing the title. It's called Elohim, and it's found all over the Hebrew Bible. And it's found, first of all, in Genesis 1 and 2, and it largely communicates the transcendence of God. He is the Mighty One. He is the great creator who just speaks and the whole universe comes into existence. That's power. That's raw power. But one time in this poem, he changes from a title to a personal name. Do you see it? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, when they're all caps, the translation is telling us, underneath it is the personal name Yahweh. All that I am, I am to you. I am the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. I never renege on my promise. I don't break my word. I can't. I'm Yahweh. And so, here he now just crashes in in a personal, powerful way, and he speaks his chesed, his loving kindness, never breaking a promise kind of love, into a wavering, waning heart in the day. And then at nighttime, how is your 2 a.m.? when you are deeply disturbed about that day or that week or that month or that year and you just want to escape under the covers and you can't go to sleep and it's 2 a.m., you look up and you see those digits, 2, colon, 0, 0, and nothing is happening. Look at verse 8. Waffling through the open window of the bedroom comes a song. A song. I'm not making this up. And this song goes through ears and into a soul and begins to give this person a new song. There's hope. There's hope. You love me. You haven't abandoned me. You don't reject me. You don't break your promise. You, you love me. And it's not just didactic. It's a poem. It's lyrics. He's singing. That's Yahweh, the God of the universe, who comes that's powerful. And notice, I don't even know how it fits. So maybe it just doesn't. He says, a prayer to my God. 
I think it's like exhale and inhale. I think he's inhaling what God is giving him at this moment, and he just exhales a prayer. Don't know what he says. I don't really care. It's in and out and in and out. I'm finally breathing the sweet air of grace. I love you, Lord. And then you turn the page. That's my page anyway, maybe not yours. And he says, you're my rock. This is my strength. This is my stability. I was so toppled and disoriented. I felt like I was in a washing machine in this water and I'm going to drown. And now you're my rock. We keep reading and you see that he has some weak faith still. There's nothing perfect about this faith. But he keeps striving. He keeps struggling. He, He asks a lot of questions. Sometimes he's questioning God. Sometimes he brings questions to God. There's a big difference between the two. And he's tumbling around, and now he's starting to move to self-talk again, the refrain in verse 11. And he says that, I think a little differently this time. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I'll again praise you. My salvation in my God. Some of your translations, this is a real strange phrase to to translate. My help, the help of my countenance and my God. Or the health of my countenance and my God. Or even if you get really close, you hear like a Yeshua in there. It's like, who's that? Sounding more like Jesus as we start moving through the storyline into, O little town of Bethlehem. And the Davidic covenant is here in the form of Christ. A lot has changed. His refrain is identical, but his tone is different. Have you ever talked to a 13-year-old and you go, I really don't like your tone? <laughs> Okay, maybe you haven't. Maybe you don't have 13-year-olds in in our church. But the words might be okay, but just that tone, come on. (laughs) There's something in there. The tone is changing. And now we move into 43 where we'll conclude. He starts going right to God and rapid fire. He starts to request. And he says, vindicate me. I want to look innocent in the presence of my enemies because they're starting to conclude bad theology about you, God. They think you don't even exist or you're utterly irrelevant. You're not, but my life looks like you are. So vindicate me. Deliver me. I want to go back to Jerusalem. So send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. I want to go back. He doesn't go back. His circumstances don't change through the whole poem. That doesn't mean he can't ask. Very specifically, he does. But then this is where it goes right to, he looks at Elohim, God, and he says, my God, my exceeding joy. We have been seeing tears day and night. 
And perhaps his cheeks are still streaked with his tears. The circumstances haven't changed, but something inside has changed. So that he says, I'll suffer. I'll stay here as long as your providence says to. Because now I'm starting to see things clearly. Now you try to look at this thing, this phrase, it's just dancing everywhere. The gladness of my joy. The joy, joy. The packed with joy to the supreme top. It's just really amazing what he's saying here. We just say to God, my exceeding joy. And then he does a few things and his refrain. So I just leave you with that. That pretty much concludes walking with our friend through suffering wanting to see something, discover something, and that is what must change in order for us to enjoy the exceeding joy. Do you see it? Your experience, your surroundings, your circumstances, your relationships your deep disappointments, your threatened and thwarted desires, it might not change today. And you might go home and you might cry. But is something changing deep in your life, like a sinking soul, like a haggard, harassed heart? And now it's starting to come around and the eyes of the heart are starting to see something a little bit clearer, a little bit better, namely, who God truly is. Can you say, in all the joys of this world, you exceed them most in the midst of your pain? That's what needs to change in order for us to enjoy exceeding joy. What needs to change? Our hearts. How does that change? Watch him walk. It's God's intervention. It's God's speaking reality. It's God's closing in and reorienting his soul so that he looks at, at God. So to conclude, in my study, I was about right here, and I, I just thought, you know, Lord, I don't know what to say. I think I'm just going to stand up and look at people. And I said, no, wait, that, that's just weird. They'll just look at me, and, and then I'll just kind of walk off. And so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll write lessons. And I said, well, that's kind of stupid. I mean, this, this wasn't like lessons, point one, point two, point three, but maybe deriving lessons from such a poem might be helpful. So I'm just going to give you the lessons I wrote down. If you want these lessons for further reflection, please don't try to write this down. Just open your heart, think about what we just went through, and if you want one of those, they're provided out on the literature table in the lobby. Okay? So this is what I wrote down. To enjoy our exceeding joy, don't feed off of your grief. Psalm 42, verse 3. 
remember that the good old days are not necessarily the best days. Psalm 42.4. And remembering God as He really is, is bringing about a new beginning. Psalm 42, verse 6 and verse 8. Understanding the providence of God over suffering helps. 42, verse 7. And don't listen, but rather speak to yourself in truth. The refrain. Pray for light and truth. I think this is a, a countenance and a reality that mingles together when he is opening our eyes and, and a countenance. God's face before us lifts up our face, our countenance, and we can actually see the invisible realities of, of truth and truthfulness and so forth. Pray for that. And w- to enjoy exceeding joy will require a look at sin and the atonement. He talks about the altar. That's talking about sin. That's talking about atonement. That's talking about forgiveness. All of you have sinned. All of you need forgiveness. All of you reflect upon that, and it doesn't go back to Jerusalem. Don't get on the bus and go. You wouldn't make it anyway. And, and the temple's not even there. Because it's gone. Jesus Christ is the temple. Jesus Christ is the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the all in all who who forgives us of all our sins and lifts them up and takes them away. And don't stop praying this way until Christ, the capstone of the Davidic covenant, Christ is your exceeding joy. Plead with God. Ask Him to open up your heart and open up your eyes to see the invisible realities of that. And express this exceeding joy in the congregation of the faithful. I love those little snapshots of what they did in Jerusalem. And I'd love more and more and more to see the snapshot in Veritas. You can clap. You can stand. You can shout for joy. You can be a throng. I love that word. (laughs) Okay. And never forget that amid suffering... Hope in God. There's either a well-placed or a misplaced hope. Look at an inner confidence and even a joyous one that you are putting that on a certain object, a destination. We can put hope on all kinds of stuff. Watch it carefully and hope in God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Psalm 42 and 43. I thank you for this great big book called the Psalter. I thank you for escorting us from start to middle and get us to the end. Please, oh, please commission that steadfast love deep into the night so that we can hear the song of gospel reality. Reorient if if must. Awaken us if must. Even if we have to sit for days, weeks, months, or years. Oh, may we say you, oh God, are our exceeding joy. And we pray this with great confidence in what you have done by sending your son to the cross on our behalf and pulling him out of the grave. We love you and we bless you in Christ's name. Amen.